from the internet, it's the Local Host Podcast with Mark Drew and Rob Dudley. Hello from the internet. In this episode, we cover the basics of web authentication. We look at the ways and means that we can verify who is trying to get in and if they have the correct access. Let's get on with the show. Hello, Rob. And we're back again. Again, it seems like a long while since we've last chatted, mate. That's because it kind of has been, but they don't know that. Oh, that's why. <laughs> Let's not tell them. Because of the way that we structure the releases, they've got no idea that it's been nearly a month, possibly a bit Indeed. Longer. But anyway. Anyway, so what are we talking about today? And who are you? Who are you, Rob? Who are you really? Is that really you, Rob? Well, I have no way of proving that to you over a podcast, do I, Mark? Apart from the fact that you're looking at me pretty much right now over a webcam. Do you consider that to be a suitable a suitable attestation? Yeah, that's a biometric security, isn't it? There we go. Well, I could be faking it, right? You know, all of this crazy machine learning, AI-generated faces and voices. I may not be here at all. Are you a deep fake? Because, uh, yeah. <laughs> deep faked. Can you imagine if we could deep fake the entire podcast? Oh, that would be easy. That would be brilliant. Just feed it some words. And it would be just, yeah. So if this ever podcast ever goes completely off the rails, then it's because the deep fake has killed us, <laughs> uh, buried us in the garden, and is now running the podcast. Yeah, just, just feeding itself. Uh, if that happens... I mean, to be honest, it's got enough data. But what actually, before we get into the whole machine learning and GAN networks and stuff like that, which seems to be like the route we're going... What is it? What are we talking about today, Rob? Uh, today we are talking about uh, authorization and authentication, which are the two important parts of the web, I guess. No, I don't guess they're really important part of the web. They're two fairly important parts of the web. Yeah, because without those, how would you know who's using your account, right? Well, what is an account if you don't have the concept of you know identification? Uh, what's the point of having an account if you don't have the means to authorize right. it to do things? So, yeah, it's kind of at the cornerstone, as I'm sure we've said before, uh, the cornerstone of the modern web, the cornerstone of doing business on the web. It's 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 cornerstones all around. I mean, it goes right to the beginning of the web, in, in a sense. It was from 1999 when you had basic authentication, right? This is the little pop-ups, if anyone has ever seen this. I, I still encounter them from time to time. When you go to a part of a of a server that's not really configured, or it's an old link, or you know, and they don't even want to show you what the web page is, right? Or to be honest, if you're bouncing off, uh, there is a certain industry uh, that uh, shall remain nameless that uses basic authentication a lot. <laughs> They're quite prevalent on the web. They produce a lot of content. Oh, I, I see. No the, 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 those types um, of content providers are they? <clears throat> So I've been told. Um, <laughs> there's also uh, there's also a ton of different reasons why you might still use basic right. auth. It's really easy to implement. Mm -hmm. Done right, it's kind of secure, mm -hmm. but it lacks a whole bunch of uh, fun features. It's you know, well, the experience sucks. So, right? so what does it look you like? I mean, let's box. explain. If, if people on the uh, well, it's just it's a grey box. It has right. a realm, yeah, which is fantastically uh, Tolkienian. Yep. It asks you for a username and a password, and then there's a button that says log in, and if it, your credentials aren't right, then you either get the box again, Handy. or you get sent to a nasty page that says something like 401 authentication required. Right. Because they wouldn't have configured that and part of the web server, right? They wouldn't have put a very specific yeah. page for that. 
And it also is kind of interesting because it's implemented in a way that if you know a normal, you know, we all know the domain name or the URL as HTTPS colon forward slash www.something.com, right? We all know that. But in basic authentication, you can actually pass your username and password in the actual URL, right? So you have HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash username colon password at www.domainname.com, right? So it's, it's fairly good for, yeah. I guess, automation because you can put a one-liner. You don't have to start saying the username and password in curl commands, for example. Well, this is it. In, uh, although, to be fair, the username and password you put into a curl command is actually basically Right. No, no, true. I, I was using that as a as a throwaway example, yeah. but in, in nearly any it's, language. It's quite a handy way to do it. If you don't have authentication built in or the concept of you know a basic authentication header built into your library, you can actually just put this into the URL, and in theory, it's meant to just work right. it out. But there's big downsides, right? Um, there's a couple. The most obvious one being that the header that's sent is not completely clear. Mm. So you don't just get the password sent up, but it's pretty much, I think it's like a base 64 encoded. Yeah. It's totally reversible. It's not encrypted or secured right. in any it's, way. It's, it's, it's a little bit mixed up for for generic spoofing, but if, if you don't actually go and, you know, if, if you actually see it, you can decrypt it pretty easily, right? You, well, it's not encrypted. You can just decode right. it. Bigger part yeah. <laughs> Since we're talking about authentication authorization, yeah. come on. Uh, so that means that it has to be run over SSL mm -hmm. or TLS in order to be even remotely secure. It also has a couple of other features. You know, there's no easy way to, uh, there's no easy experience that you can hang off it. It's just this mm -hmm. box. You can't style that box. You can't add to that box. You can't embellish it. It's just a box. The only thing you can change is the realm for no reason that I can discern. And, and which is terrible because you need users to have some kind of knowledge of what they're doing. So what, why weren't they allowed to log in? Were, was their account deactivated? Was the password incorrect? Did they not put enough of the password? Was it, was, was it username versus email? All this kind of information which, is, which users kind of now expect. How do they reset passwords? That whole workflow is not available with basic authentication. Well, or not evident. Technically it is. But the trouble is so many people got used to implementing basic and digest authentication, mm. which is its big brother, which is a little bit more secure. Mm -hmm. But they got so used to implementing it at the web server. Right. It very rarely got implemented um, as part of an application. Right. And the thing is, if you've got an application, then that 401 page that you have to send after however many times, three, I think, uh, or they hit cancel... It's completely customizable, and you could build all of this this function and logic in at that point. However, the general lack of customization and ability to wrap other stuff around the login form, and also the fact that it provides basic auth provides no mechanism that's consistent for registration. Oh, that's true. Yeah, which is let's face it, the the first right. part of the user journey. So you fill out this lovely form and you register and what have you, and then you click the login button and flunk. Yeah. That's all you get. So complete lack of consistency and despite the fact that digest actually made it more secure mm. and if you want to know how it did that feel free to go and look it up it's it's quite dull there's there's a rotational element to it it's slightly less hard to just intercept mm -hmm. but the rest of the world got fed up of dealing with this big box that they couldn't style i'm pretty sure it was the marketing department yeah 
and they decided that there must be a better but way. But it's also UI is a very important thing in the web. The web evolved from 1999 from grey boxes and Mozilla spinning logos and flaming logos to something a little bit more useful and not utilitarian, you know, much more graceful and, and better looking, what we hope, right? Um, and it's now invaded different parts of our world. So, but one of the problems I think that then the forms based thing was that there was no spec right we knew what the kind of spec or basic authentication was but for forms there wasn't a spec in the sense of what it should do or how you should store that information i, I fear we may have just jumped ahead here um so forms in this case for those who weren't keeping up forms based authentication is the ability to just have a form on the website that you can style right. and you can put all of this additional functionality on and it just posts that data back to the site right. And it's up to you as the site owner to intercept it and do with it what you mm -hmm. will, right? But but the site owners don't know what so, to do, what to do with it. I've seen so many, you know, like when it's being saved. This is a, a thing that we've gone over before, right? It's like, what do you do with those passwords? What do you do with the usernames? I mean, what information do you ask for? What kind of validation messages is it safe to send? Do you tell them that your username was incorrect, or is that allowing people to enumerate your entire database? Yeah. How do you build in all of the throttling and the, the ability to ensure that they can only log in three times before they get kicked out? All of that has to be coded. Right. Again and again and again in it, different sites in different ways. And again and again and again. There is a lot to be said for basic authentication. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> if, only, if only they'd given us the ability to embed that box. That's it. That was all they had to do. But no. So they force us down this, this route. Because the other nice thing about basic auth, not to keep banging on. I am actually on commission. <laughs> Every one of those pop-ups, uh, I get 0. 0. 0. 0. 0. 0.0000000. Is this from Tim Berners-Lee? Is this like a leak yeah, from I'm your other podcast? The man. No, he's definitely not paying us ever if he listens to the other <laughs> podcast. But the one thing that Basecore did was once it was set up, you got a persistent authentication header. Right. And it was just built in. So once you'd logged in, the browser kept you logged in. And the server knew that you were logged in, and all you had to really do was check on both ends, and it was fine. Yep. With forms-based auth, of course, what do we have to Send do? A cookie. We have to. Well, we had to invent cookies. Oh, that's for true. One. The cookies weren't invented for, <laughs> before that. And then we've got to send them and make sure that the cookies are actually turned on because I don't know how far oh, back God. your. Well, I know how far back yours goes, but do you remember when cookies were not a thing you could rely right, on? Right, right. It's like, please enable cookies was one of one of the things that you had to say. And I think I the first version of IE didn't have them implemented on. Someone's going to tell me that I'm wrong, uh, yeah. but I remember it, it being an or issue. There were, there were all sorts of companies that would have, you know, they deployed Netscape globally, and they had cookies turned off for security. Eh. <laughs> um, well, look where that ended up. Well, I mean, that's the other thing is, of course, having finally decided that we've got to convince everybody to turn the cookies on in order to allow us, you know, to authenticate mm. them. What happens? The flaming marketeers come along and start abusing the humble cookie. Poor little thing. And now we're in a data mining privacy war just because we need to be able to log into the damn thing. I say, basic auth had a lot going yeah, for that's it. That's true. <laughs> but we're in that world. We still, of course, have to ensure that we're using uh, TLS SSL, yep. right? Don't want to be sending usernames and passwords over plain text channel. It's bad times. But we get a lot more flexibility and a lot more control. And with great power comes all that responsibility that tires us poor developers out. Because the thing that's always that I've seen throughout my career is going to other people's machines or servers and seeing how they're storing all of this. 
and it will shock you. Most of the internet has been written with duct tape and blue tag to stay on brand. And they're doing these logins because each time they're reinventing the wheel. And this is where you have things like, in internal networks anyway, in Windows networks, you have something like Active Directory, right? That generally works on Windows, Windows IE, and you can Ooh. actually authenticate people. Yeah, so there was it's a difficult thing. effectively what we're talking about is there's the battle of kind of the two, uh, well, there's two battlegrounds for authentication mm-hmm. and identification. Uh, and what we've been talking about so far has been web based. Yep. Obviously, uh, not everything runs over the web. Or, or over the public web. Still waiting. Right? Uh, or in, indeed over the web at yeah. all. You know, the internet is a wonderful thing, but it probably doesn't contain Microsoft Word. Uh, other word processors are available. So the other flip side of this is, of course, it's workstation or user authentication within an organization. Mm-hmm. And this is where you get a whole bunch of competing standards. So you've got Unix authentication, which is a whole big thing. And we won't go into too much detail on that because nobody really <laughs> uses it anymore. Uh, it's all just pretty much SSH, mm-hmm. right? And, of course, Windows needed to authenticate whole forests of forests. users. <laughs> Little Active Directory pun yeah, for you there. Yeah. Uh, and they, well, they didn't introduce the standard. It was part of something else that they bought. I can't remember. My AD history mm. is not that great. No. Uh, but there's kind of a Kerberos element to it. There's a couple of different standards. And they're all a complete nightmare to work with. Uh, not going to lie. If you ever had to code Kerberos integration into an application or Active Directory integration into an application and you're not using the Microsoft or Java toolkits, forget about oh, it. Oh, please come on the show and tell us all about it and we can actually... Or, yes, please do. And you'd be like, no, you're yeah. wrong. I did it in Python. It was lovely. <laughs> it was easy without a library. I coded it from... I'm assuming that's what people sound like when they, they email us to correct yeah. a, a mistake that I've made on the show. So AD and the general domain authentication, which then introduced a whole other set of problems, especially because we've got this corporate account, right? right? And users are trained that they log into their corporate account in uh-huh. the morning. And that they changed their password. Fair enough, it used to be every yeah, month it was or whatever 30 it was, days. and now it's now it's just chill, chill out because Nest has, I don't know, smoked a bowl and generally gotten over themselves. <laughs> but that authentication, and then they'd go off to the web and they'd have to log into the internet and they would use a different set of credentials. Or maybe the internet was actually close enough that they could actually authenticate, but then they'd go off to this external SaaS mm-hmm. product because some marketing bot had decided that this thing called Salesforce would be a good idea. Other CRMs are also available. <laughs> and they would use a different uh, authentication and, and it, it gets super messy because then you've got all these different usernames and passwords to use. There is a solution to this. There is? How do we solve all of this, yep. Rob, for God's sake? Well, it's another set of technologies because the one thing that everybody loves is rather than fixing the technology we've got, let's add another right. layer. Although in this case, the layer kind of makes sense. And these are the the concept of single sign-on. So we've got SAML yeah. um, and a bunch of other little cool technologies, all of which, again, pretty horrible to work mm. with. But the trick is you don't actually have to work with them because there's just providers out there like Auth0, Okta, OneLogin. Frankly, Microsoft, Google, uh, probably Facebook, although maybe to a lesser degree, every single one of these, every single man and his dog seems to have a single sign-on solution that takes their directory or their user base as the the true user base and expects everybody else just to integrate with it. I mean, this and this is what you see on many websites now. You go to a website and it says like, hey, do you want to sign in by creating an actual account? Or just click here and use your Google account or use your Facebook account. Although taking a, a slight tangent, what's going to happen with a Google Plus account was one of the logins, but now 
not your Google account, but you. Well, apparently Google are maintaining sign in with Google, right? But not Google Plus because Google Plus is right, gone. Right. right, it's been sunsetted, and I can definitely still log into things with Google. So we have this situation where the big players in the space actually have all of these different solutions, and they go one step further because if you as a developer want to implement sign in with mm-hmm. Google or sign in with Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever the heck it is, that's fine. That's on you. They also provide tools that go the other way around. So if you're the administrator of a network, you can actually configure a system to say, actually, let's tie this back against Google and use proper SAML authentication so they can just log in there using their email, username and password. Job's good enough, which is all good fun. It's always good fun to integrate. But having said that, like these providers, I can I can attest to Auth0 because I worked with them for a little bit. That, that was actually not too difficult for them to tie you into your internal system. So you could so what was kind of useful was sometimes integrating various different systems. So you have single sign-on across these different systems. One was written in Node, one was written in ColdFusion, and you could have like, like your .NET app all kind of authenticating and authorizing the people in the same area. Yay, JavaScript. Now, of course, the other problem I have with these providers is not so much... I mean, it was interesting you raised Google as what happens if they go away, but uh, a more prescient point at the moment, and this is one that's actually bit me, is what about quit Facebook? Oh, yeah, because you quit Facebook, didn't yeah, you? You, you? You sign in with Facebook all over the place, especially for casual social Right. And all of a sudden, you've shut down your Facebook account, and you've waited the 90 days or whatever, and they've actually shut yeah. it down. And then you remember that, oh, but I, the beer social network that I was using, I used Facebook sign-in because it was there. It's a problem, and unless those systems are properly architected to... Because effectively, signing with all of these systems should end up with the website user having your email address, right. right, at some point. There should be some common identifier that you could actually use to do a password reset, regain access to the system. Yeah. If they haven't done that, you're a bit up the paddle. Up the paddle? Up, up the, the creek, creek without the paddle. Without because the paddle, that paddle, you've... you've uh, let go of the paddle and got rid of it and, and waited, thrown it and waited 90 you've, days you've for it to sail away. chucked it to the other bank. So, yeah, using third-party suppliers is a bit tricky. I mean, Auth0, fundamentally, it's their business, right? right? They're probably not going to go anywhere. But as a developer, it seems very tempting to drop in all of these social logins, and, and uh, it's nice and fun until somebody deletes their account, and I need to put in logic to recover it. The other thing I would say is that all of these uh, social login systems, leaving aside the fact that they all install a cookie, see above about yeah. tracking, is that they all use slightly different implementations. So you're having to write, I mean, it's fine, you sit down and you go, right, we're going to add sign in with Facebook. Mm-hmm. Because lots of people use Facebook. And then you get somebody saying, I don't use Facebook. I use I use Google. Right. right, fine. I will sit down. I will add a sign in with Google. And then you get professional businessman comes along and says, well, I use neither of those things. I use LinkedIn. Right, right auth with LinkedIn. Uh, and then you get a spotty teenager comes along and says, well, actually, I just use Twitch or Reddit. or And, and it's just like, oh, my God. How many different authentication mechanisms are you willing to support mm to make your life easier. There was one system that I remember using, and for the life of me, I can't remember. I'll remember literally when we stopped recording that allowed you to put, like, just one widget on your website and you'd have, like, 20 different auth systems. But it kind of, I thought it kind of defeated the point on a, on a user experience kind of way, right? Because it's like, which tribe do you belong to? You can still log into a website, but it's like, well, then you don't know. I don't really have a problem with that. It's more a problem of uh, you're then trusting that one... You've introduced another third party into what is already a third party authentication flow. Right. 
So yeah, I suppose it makes it a bit easier, but makes it a bit fragile. But then yeah, if if you you know hive this off to somebody else to manage all the problems then it's mostly fine because you would hope that they've thought of all of this stuff like what happens if they've deleted this account or what have you but also with a lot of this authentication uh style dubriness you have to be very careful with the permissions you're requesting especially if you're using an additional service because it's very easy to do auth with no permissions at all but a lot of the time you'll ask for a bit more information mm-hmm. or you know that that whole workflow because we, we're going to come on to OAuth now right very briefly don't worry very briefly but that whole workflow is also used to grant third-party access to a user's right. account which is very different to just using it for authentication against a different web service and with these things uh, even if we're, we're delegating a lot of the the authentication as you say the the provider or the the website owner would be asking you to create a password I said, like, hey, you've got to create this password so that hopefully you'd be able to log in afterwards, right? I don't think they would. I mean, this is my point, is a lot of the social login experiences that I've used, they trust implicitly the authentication state that comes back from the login provider. So when I have a user, you know, when I sign up for something with Google, the operator of that site just takes it as read. They're like, oh, well, Google says they're okay. No need for any further information from my end. Yeah, but the thing is tying in the, 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 whichever account you have on that website. So, mm-hmm. you know, your beer app that lists all your beers, it ties you to that token that you have with with Facebook, right? Yeah. So hopefully there's a secondary token, which would be your email. Well, that that would be the ideal scenario, yes, if they've managed to save it, store it, and they've put in place the work to actually allow me to replace that social auth with traditional forms-based right. auth. It's... Tricky, <laughs> very it's tricky. Really tough. Of course, you then get to the same same problems that you've had before. If you do, if you don't use the, those third party ones, you start getting into the same problems that you had before, which is you have to manage your passwords, right? <laughs> and we're back into that that yes. mess that I don't know if we've covered before in the podcast, which is the fact that you know the whole you know horse battery staple versus a complex password versus putting your password on a sticky note on on the machine etc right yeah i mean constantly changing is a little unfair but it has quite recently changed we joked about nist earlier but the main go-to set of guidelines for how do we determine what is a secure password has completely 180 in the past like yeah it was pretty recent isn't it so we should say what what Uh, nist is right uh we could (laughs) <laughs> is a national institute for standards and technology which it, well, yeah. what they do is they basically give white papers and guidance essentially to business to say mm-hmm. what's a good standard for whatever right and one of those standards is passwords yeah so they provide guidance but that guidance is traditionally so incredibly well thought through and incredibly well structured that it can almost be taken and, and it can be made into policy right. and one the previous uh, guidance that they were providing was something that you've probably seen around the web which is it has to be eight characters long it has to have capitals it has to have special characters it uh, i don't know what else it has to have a number in it so uppercase lowercase alphanumeric special characters minimum of right. eight digits and this is what you've seen a minute like hundreds of sites each time you try to create your password and it goes oh it has to be capitals and you go like really okay uh, and even worse it has been mistaken 
by saying like, oh, your password's too long. I can remember there's a very big site that was going like, yeah, you're over like eight characters. It's like, what? Well, it's when they decide that they need to put an upper bound yeah, on it. which is terrible. Uh, it's like, your password must be between six and... No, no <laughs> and. There is no maximum in this scenario. <laughs> Allow me to feel free to introduce as much entropy as possible and you build your database to handle yeah. it. I mean... Also, by the way, when they apply a maximum length, that's normally a fairly good indication that they're storing that password in clear. Yeah. Because a hash is the same length regardless of how much data I put into it. Ooh. <laughs> Hackathon time. Casting shade on unknown website providers. Burn. But yeah, uh, the thing is they've flipped it. Um, they've now said that actually we don't need all of that rubbish. Uh, what we need is something that is long. Right. And the longer it is, the more entropy it will inherently have, which is actually quite yeah. right from kind of an information theory perspective. And also, it makes them easier to remember because yeah. uh, little Bo Peep has lost her sheep, one, two, three, four, is actually a fairly secure password. I mean, it's not anymore because I've just said it on the podcast. I've just told everyone your theory, password, Rob. Yeah, because I blatantly <laughs> use that. It's clearly four, five, six. Yeah, so using something like that is longer. It's much easier to remember. You don't need to write it down. And the other thing that the, the NIST guidelines really changed on was uh, the, the requirement to rotate passwords because nobody rotates their passwords, right. right, unless they're forced to. I mean, you know, with the best of intentions, that you should probably switch those passwords out twice a year for critical systems. Yeah. Under previous guidance, it was once a month. I think one of the problems that, that, that you have is... In systems, and I was just thinking about this right now, is like what it happens if you have old or maybe not deactivated accounts, accounts like yours, that, for example, in in Facebook, right? That you say, okay, so they haven't logged in for a long time, so you just have to say that after ninety days, or however long your, your rotation is, it's like, hey man, you can't get in without changing your password. Well, yeah, and this is exactly what the the Windows experience mm. is. If you get your password expired on a domain and you log in, it says your password has expired. Please set a new password. And you are not allowed to proceed until you have. But the point is that password rotation is one of those things that only ever happens when you are literally... Somebody holds a digital gun to your head. When they get in the way of you doing whatever it was you wanted to do and don't let you do it until you've changed it. Otherwise, most people are probably still using the same password for their email that they were using two years ago. I say most... Don't at me. But as a site owner, they'll probably not want to... You don't want to put that traction for, for users, right? Because you'd have a lot of users, like, leaving, right? So it's a problem. It's a, it's a maybe not a technical problem, but it's a human problem of saying, like, look, you have to change your password, and they're going to go, fine. So w there needs to be a new way to do these this thing, right? So we've had... So in a way... Apple with the thumb, I mean, with with a thumbprint, touch the touch ID. ID. Yeah, that was trying to remember the, the name of it, and DM. the face ID. Other biometric uh, authentication uh, yeah. methods yeah. are available. Exactly right, but the, the the other authentication methods have been around for a while because I remember many laptops came with fingerprint scanners that didn't work very well. I've got I've got two that both have a fingerprint scanner on it, and Windows still supports it. It's amazing. Right. It's not smart enough to realise that the fingerprint scanner on my ThinkPad is totally easy to spoof and break, but it's fine. Sure. It also has a Windows Hello. Oh, so. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. I haven't heard of it. It's their combination of facial recognition, a pin code, biometrics. It's, it's all rubbish, but it's aimed at home users. Oh, so right. Is that when I, when I can go to my uh, 
when it goes, instead of asking for a password, ask me for a pin. And I'm going like, well, why do I have a password if I have, if you're just going to let me in with a pin? Don't know. Not, not sure who at Microsoft came up with that one. If you're listening, let us know. Why did you decide to reduce the security of a system by allowing users to log in with a six-digit or four-digit pin code in place of a uh, actual strong password? But now the, the technology seems to be moving more towards having biometric stuff, right? So, Well, biometrics, I and mean, this is something that we're going to talk about probably a little bit more in depth in our next yeah. episode. But biometrics have always been, uh, they've played a strong part in what's been referred to as the multi-factor or second yeah. factor of authentication. What's really happening at the moment is a shift towards using biometrics as either the key that locks up your key, mm-hmm. which is a, a very convoluted way of saying it, but yeah. you know, on, on an iPhone, for example, or, or indeed pretty much any Google device these days, the fingerprint can actually be used to authenticate directly. You don't need to put in a password. It's not a second factor. It's the right. factor. And it's assumed that because you are in that device and because you've got that finger, that's as good as your password. Exactly. And likewise, this is happening with uh, Apple. It's happening increasingly with a whole bunch of different you know, computer providers deciding to introduce and reintroduce this technology. Uh, Windows already do it, so the idea that I can unlock directly with a fingerprint and unlock straight in. And we've also had the new standards coming up, which are uh, basically taking all of this stuff and rolling into a new set of authentication standards. Okay. Specifically for use on the right, web. which is which is a big chasm that, that that I was going to allude to, which was yeah, sure, all the hardware can authenticate you, essentially, so you can get into operating system. But web systems now don't have currently now they're starting to get access to this technology or direct access to this technology through API, through JavaScript APIs, for example, right? Yeah. And the standardization of the technology to allow those APIs to come into being, rather than, as you're exactly right, it's always been a device or, or ecosystem-centric mm-hmm. thing. So Apple Touch ID, until very recently, was only usable, in fact, possibly even now, was only usable for Apple software. So software that you've downloaded from the App Store or the Safari browser. Right. So, which is like basically saying you have to be in an Apple ecosystem. So I doubt even yeah. if I'm going to be really out of date now because I've been on Windows, but even the Safari on Windows machines is not going to allow you to do that, right? Nope. Uh, not so far as I'm aware. Feel free yeah. to correct me. And likewise, things like Chrome on iOS, which even though it's technically WebKit, doesn't have access to these uh, APIs. So it's really, really mm-hmm. locked down. And what the WebAuthN standard is trying to do is it's trying to say, well, firstly, we want a standard that web operators can effectively implement, yep. web developers rather can implement operators of sites. And it's the same standard, irregardless of whatever that key or technology happens right. to be. So whether it's a, a, a camera on your iPhone using Face ID, or it's the fingerprint reader on your the Google phone. Yeah, your Pixel, Pixel 3. 3. Yeah, or your face unlock, or even yeah, your USB key that's an authenticated standard. Right. And what they've done is actually quite smart, because they've said, well, the authentication process and the identification process, if you abstract it out, uh, can be distilled down into these two bits. It's like the initial identification and registration mm-hmm. of the user, and then it's just verifying that they're them. Right. And the means by which they do that, whether it's a password, a PIN code, a fingerprint, a retina scan, a DNA scan, a, I don't know, what else, what else, facial recognition, 
It doesn't matter. Breath analysis. That's that breath analysis or cadence analysis. Oh, I yeah. was quite like. Um, but that that should be left up to the user and the user agent. It's their problem. Okay. You as the operator just need to be able to say, is this person this person? And the user agent comes back and says, yeah, or no. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And that's what WebAuthn is trying to do quite brilliantly. Of course, it's getting a little bit of a little bit of resistance and what have you because it's still quite new sure. and lots of people have, have, well, again, we'll talk about this in the second segment as well. Uh, lots of people have very traditionally thought of those things as not the authentication mechanism. They are a second factor, a backup, a verification, another layer. But, yeah, we're getting there slowly, oh so slowly. But So the next part, uh, that we'll talk about in the next episode will be about these systems and how these systems are working. So uh, OAuth, one, two, three. I'm joking. It's only only one and two so far. Uh, or WebAuthn and how the public and uh, private keys get exchanged. Uh, two-factor authentication and all these more advanced ways to authenticate users. But this episode was mainly to cover, I guess, the basics or where it all came from. I think the basics, the general state of play, and the fact that you know we need to start off by having a good old moan and saying that yeah, this stuff is is quite way more complicated than it needs to be. But looking back over the history of it and the way it's evolved, you can kind of see why. And hopefully, by the end of the next episode, we'll have outlined what I genuinely believe to be a path to the next level of complexity. It shouldn't be. It should be a road to simplicity and a single standard. But it it won't be. We know that from experience. And on that note, we shall see you in the next episode.